BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I see the fun. I see the fun. The Diary of Jeff Kirkman. I seem fun, the Diary of Jen Kirkman podcast, episode 250. 250. Is this some kind of, should there be a special celebration for this one? Is there some kind of, and 250 has that number to it, that the 250th episode, like you're supposed to have an anniversary. Oh, it's 9-11. It's 9-11. That's it. That's what it is. The 250th episode is also very special because 9-11 is something we talk about a lot on this podcast. I'm going to say this. I am wearing a, I don't know what material it is, the cotton kind of a schlubby hat, you know, a little Urban Outfitters beanie. I've got that hat on. It's not a tinfoil hat, but uh, it's, it's, um, I'm going to say something that sounds like I'm wearing a tinfoil hat, and I will cop to wearing a hat. But I don't think we're going to, I think we're going to find out that 9-11 had more of a Russia tint than we ever knew. Um, A lot of the hijackers were uh, paid to train by Russian mob. There's all kinds of things. I'm just saying... I think the current day stuff goes back further than we fucking know. Why would the fuck I start an episode that way? So I never knew that Alex Jones of Alex Jones psychotic conspiracy theory fame is the guy that did the loose change video that, you know, was on YouTube. And the fact that he has been so tied in with Russia and the fact that he had a conspiracy theory that the planes didn't really crash, this is an inside job, now makes me more than ever think, because you know that's what they do. That's what's been going on in this administration. They say Hillary has a pedophile ring in a pizza place, in the basement of a pizza place, which much like the Alamo There is no basement in that place. And we see all of the people tied in to uh, the GOP who are pedophiles. We see all of the, everything they say that is some sinister thing is, is like a silent projection or confession. And so the fact that Alex Jones, all Russian mobbed up, went to these great lengths to try to convince us it was an an inside job makes me think how much did the Russian government have to do with funding certain things? I don't know. Um, well, that's a terrible way to start an episode. I'm just going to straight up say, see, this is why I don't talk about, uh, anything of importance anymore on this podcast because (laughs) I sound stupid, but I'm just putting that, just putting that in your bonnet. Um, I don't want to go on and on about 9-11 any more than I normally would, but um, I had a friend recently whose uh, boyfriend had a heart attack. He's okay, but it was touch and go for the first day. They weren't sure what was going on. He was in a medically induced coma for a few days, and uh, she was freaking out, obviously. This is nobody that you guys know. Um, And so they'd been having kind of an issue right before the heart attack. I mean, not that was not what the heart attack was not a stress response to this issue, but like just sort of an ongoing thing where she was like, I really hope he ends up facing this issue he has because I'm afraid it could affect blah, blah, blah down the line if we want to 
commit further, right? And then when he had the heart attack, her perspective completely went to, I just want him to be okay. I'm sorry about how picky I've been about, you know, that he's not ready for this yet, or he's not ready for that. And I'm, I love him the way he is and whatever is fine. And I remember thinking, if he survives, she will feel differently in a week. Once he is back to normal, she will have what I had on September 18th, 2001. <laughs> that moment where real life creeps back in and you think, I'm a fucking monster. How could I be thinking about my hair, my weight, my career, my boyfriend, when I can still smell the jet fuel? You know, how can I just bounce right back into the same old problems when I almost lost this person a week ago? But I didn't say anything because there's really no point. She can't process that in that moment. It's not helpful. I almost wish I had said it so that when she did snap back a week later, that she could have said, oh, Jen did warn me about this and maybe it is normal. But I, I waited. And when she uh, had some issues a week later, I said to her, I call this the 9-11 experience. Um, so yeah, about a week later, he was doing better. And, you know, um, there's a whole process to healing from a heart attack where you have to rest, you know, and, and he lives kind of far from her and, and in an area where it wouldn't be too great to be alone in case something happened again. And, and, you know, he wants to be near where he could get to a hospital again, right quick. And so that was going to be something on her mind. Well, is he going to stay with me? Is he going to stay with family? And, I believe that she was thinking if he stays with her, that's really a sign of his commitment. Now, I, I think that he's very committed to her and that he's staying with his family because um, the family's just been through a lot this year and it's it's easier. But, but, but she had to work through her feelings of when he ultimately decided to stay with his family. And she felt that same thing come up that she's been experiencing with him, which is can I trust that he's going to be able to commit? Now, I'm not saying he's a cheater, they're not that type of commitment, but will he ever truly be as invested as she feels that she is? And uh, can she sit with that he is invested, it just looks different and sometimes makes her feel bad? You know, we bring up each other's issues, right? And so she was thinking, he still hasn't had his he's still not out of the hospital. He's not finished with the things. And here I am already feeling her feelings, you know, feeling like she wants to criticize him, feeling like she wants to demand something of him, feeling like she's not getting enough out of the relationship. And she thought, how? And I said, because we don't live in an ER. We don't live in 9-11 every day. That day happens. It's almost so hard to comprehend. I mean, I know we're all really good people, but the shock and trauma of that, that pushes people to donate blood, go out in the streets, hug a stranger. It's not even a choice half the time. It's this primal response to needing to feel part of something and needing to feel safe and protected because of the fucking roof has been blown off literally and figuratively of this feeling that we are protected because we are in America or we are protected because we are in a big fancy city that has lots of cops and firemen and the National Guard. But, you know, ultimately, as Bush said, borders no longer protect us. <laughs> well, they never did. The ships have always come over and attacked us, but that's okay. Oceans no longer protect us. That's what he said. They never did. Uh, but I know what he's saying. Certainly easier to fly on over here than it is to uh, sail on over here. Uh, but again, the people were in America anyway. So whatever, who cares? Man was just trying to make a speech. So, yeah, I mean, a week later, my real life still came to the surface. My issues don't go away 
just because something tragic happened. Now my perspective changed on that day. Now it doesn't mean that I don't have to keep practicing that perspective. My perspective had a new, let let me put it this way. I had a new perspective that day. It didn't replace all other perspectives that I have. It was just added to the toolbox. But I think these things feel so impactful that we think I'm different now. And we get disappointed in ourselves when we're not. But that's not how anything works, you know? It's just not how anything works. But if you think about it, you have all your bad qualities and you have all your great qualities. And every once in a while, you add a new quality to your bucket of qualities. And so I added a new perspective about what it actually felt like to be in a crisis like that. And actually, I didn't have a panic attack where I have had panic attacks based on nothing. And it showed me, oh, good. It really is true that the panic attacks are based on nothing. And I'm not going to go through life responding to every situation like someone having a panic attack. So, and it just gave me perspective how lucky I am and that I do live somewhere that isn't constantly war-torn and this and that, you know, um, whether it's the country I live in or the part of the country I live in or the socioeconomic status I have or the, the skin color status I have, it's, it's, I'm very lucky. So, but it doesn't mean that I never feel any of my other perspectives again, good or bad. It just means that maybe for that day or two, that one took such a precedence, but it's shock and trauma. It, nothing else can get in, you know? Um, it's not that suddenly we became amazing people and then we failed a week later. It's just that it starts to, but you can remember, oh God, now you have a touchstone. Now you have your own personal experience from that day and you can say, oh, that's right. I can take some of that perspective and just remember. It's like lifting weights, building a muscle, swimming, whatever it is. You may not ever feel in your heart again the way you did the minute you watched your city fall apart. But you you can certainly recall the perspective that you gained and just you can call it back up. You know, we don't have to constantly live in the terror, trauma, gratitude, weird community spirit of a national tragedy. We can't live there every day. We just can't. And the human spirit goes on. And 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 as gross as it is to admit, it's not just that, oh my God, the human spirit is so amazing. We just, we just want to rebuild. It's like, we also just want to forget. You know, f- forgetting is a big part of how humans cope. And that is part of why rebuilding can be so important. And, and I think it's both. I think it's okay to say that we're like a deeply flawed psyches. But anyway, so as we are here on 9-11, I remember uh, a few years ago, I was performing at the Buffalo, uh, the Helium Comedy Club in Buffalo, New York. I think it was, yeah, it was 2016, September 2016. And the last show was Saturday night, uh, September 10th. And I flew home on Sunday the 11th and I was actually, so flew JetBlue, Buffalo to New York City and you have a layover and then get off the plane. Uh, I mean, change, not get off the plane, stay on the plane, other people get on and go from New York to JFK. So I was on a nine something AM flight to LAX. Uh, so it brought up like, oh, you know, but it was not a weekday and it was not the same airlines. And so it wasn't at all exact, but I was on the plane and I was watching CNN and they just showed footage from, from the day. And, and, uh, the person next to me, I think, because I was in the exit row, the first row of JetBlue row six. And it's one of those things where the TV isn't on the back of your seat. You flip it up almost like a tray table, but it's at an angle. And so the person next to you, whether they like it or not out of the corner of their eye, unless they move their head, they can see what you're watching out of the corner of their eye, like it or not. And this guy just kept turning to me as if to say, are you fucking serious right now with watching planes fly into a building, planes that just took off from the very city we did? This is weird. But it just so didn't scare me anymore that I honestly felt that I was commemorating both 9-11 and 
my own fear of flying. But I also feel like I need to watch that footage as many times as possible on that day. Because if I had died in a plane crash that went into a building on 9-11, if everyone I know didn't think about it at least a few times a year in detail, I would be angry. We have to think about it. These people, it must have been pure fucking terror. Whew. Anyway, um, it still gets me. It still makes me sad. And it, I spent a lot of time in um, Brooklyn this year, obviously, and a lot of the neighborhoods have just so many little memorial plaques and little memorial benches and for all the firefighters that lost their lives from Brooklyn. And there are so many. And I just, wow. I just can't imagine that that's your job, that you run into the thing that could kill you. And that, you know, I'm sure my instinct would be if I was training for that, yeah, yeah, no, I got it. I'm going to run in. I'm going to run in. You know, I got it. No, of course, that's my job. But when it's actually happening, I think my instinct would be, oh, I don't, I'm not actually going to run in. I mean, of course, that's why I'm not a firefighter because I don't think they would ever do that. But to actually have that instinct, I don't want to go in and go in anyway, or not have the, to, to not have the instinct that you don't want to go in to actually think this is what I signed up for. It's unreal. Thank God. I Sometimes I will sit around and worry about the stupidest things. I think, what if no one else wants to be a doctor? We have all the doctors now that will ever be. And nobody new wants to be a doctor. What the fuck do we do? What if nobody else wants to be a firefighter? What do we fucking do? Because I feel like everyone's a comedian and we literally don't need any more. Uh, I truly... If you have a child and you are a doctor and you are listening, whatever you have to do to get your child to be a doctor, I would greatly appreciate that. Now, you can't push them into being a doctor because then they will rebel and they will become a comedian. So maybe push, I don't know, don't push them to be a comedian. That could backfire. They could still become one. But if there's a psychological tactic you can employ to make sure that your kid ends up a doctor like you, fucking do it. Or literally force them into it. And, you know, they won't have their dreams come true in life, but there will be enough doctors for me and my generation when I'm older. These are things I worry about. So I'm just asking you to help me out with it. Anyway. Oh, God. Oh, God. What is she talking about? Oh, I seem fun. Write a review on iTunes. Give it five stars and please do subscribe. You can follow me on Twitter at Jen Kirkman or at I Seem Fun Podcast. There's a Facebook fan page, facebook.com slash I Seem Fun Podcast. And when you go to said Facebook fan page, the pinned tweet has a link. We have a secret closed, well, it's not secret, but we have a closed Facebook group for I Seem Fun fans. And you guys can talk about any and all subjects that you hear about on this show and you can, uh, I'm totally down with if people want to advertise things that they sell. I don't give a shit. What would I give a shit for? Um, all the episodes of this podcast I hear exist on SoundCloud. We are also on Google Play and Spotify. People are asking me about Stitcher. I'm going to look into that. We used to be on there. There used to be a thing where they would take money from artists because they had advertising, but we never got a cut of it. And it was just like, I'm giving them content that they can make money off. It didn't seem right. People send an email to I at gmail.com. Now my friend Allison and I are going to do some bonus holiday advice episodes. So if you need advice about anything to do with your Thanksgiving trip, your Christmas trip, or your new year's, you need to get those advices in by September 30th. So please do email me I seem fun at gmail.com. We will record the episodes and they will air earlier than Thanksgiving and Christmas and New Year's so that you can actually take the advice, but they will be bonuses and uh, you can listen to them if you need the advice or they can just be fun things to listen to during the holidays, but they will all be things about the holidays. So come on, people. I'm part of the All Things Comedy Network, allthingscomedy.com. 
Hold the date, Brooklyn, November 5th. I'm going to be in the New York Comedy Festival, and I'll be at the Bell House in Brooklyn. I'm going to do a mix of everything, some old classics, some new stuff. I'm going to improvise off the top of my head. It's just going to be a fun fucking show, and I'm calling it Me Here Right Now. (laughs) And uh, what's great about it is... I don't know what's great about it. It's just that I, I love New York and I'll be there and you'll love it. And uh, yeah, we'll take a picture after. I mean, come on, mix it up with the people. So that is going to be on sale soon. Just hold the date for now. Monday, November 5th, the night before midterm elections. Maybe it's the last night of America. Who knows? I really need you guys to buy tickets for my Sacramento show at Harlow's. The ticket sales are not great on that one. I'm pretty bummed. So if you could help a girl out, jenkirkman.com, click tour dates. Uh, Cobbs in San Francisco is actually going very fast. I think it's going to sell out before the show. So I beg of you to get those tickets as well. jenkirkman.com, click tour dates. I had a big rush of tickets uh, for my lab test shows in September and October, which are at the Hollywood Improv Lab. It's a small space where I work out new stuff. And um, on October, the October one, I'm going to be unveiling my latest hour that's never been done on TV. But if you've seen me around LA, you may have seen it, but I would get tickets to that because I've got some industry folks coming and I need you to laugh real loud. So there's about 15 tickets left for each show in advance. There are always tickets at the door, but I'm saying uh, we sell a lot in advance. And once it gets to tickets left at the door, it is first come, first serve. So I wouldn't wait if you definitely know that you need to be there. JenKirkman.com, click tour dates. I would get them at the sound of my voice. At the sound of my voice. And I'm in Burlington, Vermont in October, October 11th through 13th at the Vermont Comedy Club. I know I went on a big rant last weekend about how it is a wonderful comedy club run by great people. And if you're all into putting your money where your mouth is, that's where you want to put it. Okay. I know a lot of you are like, how do we support you? You're always getting, you know, criticized in the media with, you know, Louis back and women are getting harassed. Literally give me a career. You know, I don't tour a lot when the numbers are down. So the only way to support is by tickets to my shows. Like that's all that this podcast is so that people come to shows. Like everything I do is in support of getting people to see me live. It is the only job I want to have. I do not want any other job. So until I'm Louie, minus the masturbating in front of people, until I'm as big as him, I do all the other jobs. I do the social media. I do this. I do that. I want you to just buy tickets to my shows. It's, I don't, think it's that fun to make a comedy special. I like the money, but there's like nothing worse than putting cameras on yourself and having your hair and makeup professionally done and performing comedy that way. It feels bizarre. I like to perform live. That's all I've ever wanted in my life. And I'm so lucky that I get to do it some years, 30 to 70% of the time. So fuck yeah, you guys. But honest to God, it is not an afterthought for me. It is the only thing I want to do for a living. So please, if you must buy anything, get tickets to my live shows. It's my dream. You're fulfilling my dream. You're funding my dream. You're making my dreams come true. (coughs) I'm a little dry today. Oh God, Jeff, are you listening? Jeff, my singing teacher that I'm so sad because I'm not in New York, so I cannot take singing lessons anymore but I wrote a song making my dreams come true. I think I'm going to sell it to David Hasselhoff. It is all up to you to make all my dreams come true. And then I come through for you. Right? I just made that up. That's pretty good. See, you make my dreams come true, but then I come through for you. Cause then when I perform your dreams come true. All right. Maybe not your dreams, but maybe like you have a good hour. You make my dreams come true. I'm, I don't remember the tune I just sang, so I can't repeat it. You make my dreams come true. That's like a different genre. You make my dreams come true. 
Okay, stop it. Stop it, Jen. I hate when you sing. I hate when you sing. I hate when you sing. Okay, somebody wrote me back about my loud heartbeat or my heart beating through my stomach. Thank you, nurse, nurse woman. She says uh, to me, she says this. Uh, what's her name? Tummy alien. Hey Jen, listening to your podcast while I organize my apartment and laughing out loud at the heartbeat in your stomach. I was terrified of the same thing literally until I was 30 years old and went back to school for nursing. She wrote that. (laughs) I learned that when you're laying down flat and on the thinner side, thank you. But I'm not, like, right now, I'm not thin for me. So I've been thinner, and I don't remember this happening. But anyway, uh, on the thinner side, you can see and feel your blood flowing through your abdominal aortic artery. It's normal and just beats harder for some people. It can be more intense with anything that makes your heart beat faster, like after a meal or staring at it and making yourself more anxious by staring at it. It's the worst that when you Google it, it tells you you're having an aortic aneurysm. But I feel obligated to tell you that if it's accompanied by severe pain, you should probably call someone. Well, yeah, I mean, oh, let me know if you want any more tidbits from a hypochondriac new nurse who also still Googles things. Live, laugh, love, Jenny. Jenny, I would be honored if you would be the I Seem Fun hypochondriac new nurse. If anyone has questions for Jenny, I seem fun at gmail.com, but Jenny, feel free to uh, write me back and just drop any knowledge you want on me that you think people might be hypochondriacal about. Um, I would love to hear from you again and read another one of your emails. So yeah, please do that. Um, yeah, so there is an aortic artery in your abdomen, so it's totally normal. It's like having a pulse in your in your wrist, but yeah, the Google search is like, well, see, here's the problem though. It says, if you have severe pain, that's a sign. And I had a really gripping stomach ache for a week and then it came back this weekend. And so I thought, I thought, um, you know, I mean, basically went home from work, you know, on my birthday and just laid in bed, gripping my stomach. Um, like, I, to me, you know, to not, to not be able to sit at work and to say like, can I, can I work from home tonight because my stomach hurts and to go back to my hotel room on my birthday, that to me is severe pain, but it really wasn't severe pain where you're sweating and crying or anything like that. And then sometimes I think, well, what if it is severe pain, but I have such a high pain threshold that I don't even notice it. So, but I think we know. I think I'm fine. I think I'm fine. I hope I'm fine. I don't know. You, okay. I'm so sorry that I'm going to keep singing this. I'm going to keep singing this. Oh, I was, I came home the other night and fell asleep on my couch at 7 p.m. and woke up at 1 a.m. And I felt so weird because I'd slept about six hours, which is almost an entire night. But I still had six hours before I should get up anyway. So I thought, well, I'll go back to bed, I guess. But what was so gross, and I'm going to admit something to you, I hadn't brushed my teeth at seven o'clock before I laid down. But as I was getting up to go to bed, I said, I could stop in the bathroom and brush my teeth, but that might wake me up more. So I'm going to go right to bed. Gross. Gross. Bad girl. Bad girl. But here's the thing. I do take very good care of my teeth. And I use our sponsor, Quip. I love the Quip toothbrush. Go to getquip.com slash fun right now. G-E-T-Q-I-P dot com slash fun. And you can take a look at what's going on. Quip. 
Quip is the new electric toothbrush that packs just the right amount of vibrations into a slimmer design at a fraction of the cost of the bulkier electric toothbrushes. It has a guiding pulse that alerts you when to switch sides, making brushing the right amount totally effortless. It comes with a mount that suctions right to your mirror and it unsticks. There's no sticky, gooey, goo-goo-goo. And you can use that as a cover for hygienic travel anywhere, whether it's the gym, your carry-on. And Quips, Quips, it runs like a subscription plan. It refreshes your brush on a dentist-recommended schedule, delivering new brush heads every three months for just $5, including free shipping worldwide, worldwide, worldwide. It got named one of Time Magazine's Best Inventions of the Year. It's been called uh, the, the iPhone of toothbrushes, I think, or the Apple and Tesla of toothbrushes. It's compact, it's light. Mine is slim. It's, it's slim and it's rose gold and it's adorable. And I get the Quip toothpaste and it's great. And it starts at just $25. And if you go to getquip.com slash fun right now, you get your first refill pack for free with your Quip electric toothbrush. And what I love about it is that I don't have to think. It just comes every three months. And I, it's a great way to mark time and say, wow, three months has gone by. What have I done with my life? Well, at least I know one thing. I've brushed my teeth. Unlike that gross Jen Kirkman who fell asleep on the couch and didn't get up to brush her teeth. How many times is she doing that? Maybe it's more times than she lets on. But I wouldn't because having a clean mouth actually means clean health. And most of you probably don't brush your teeth for a full two minutes a day or brush twice a day, but you should. And with Quip, it's easy because of those guided pulses that let you know how long to keep that thing in and when to switch sides. And it's so sleek looking, you'll look like a rich bitch. I'm telling you, people are like, oh my God, her toothbrush must be like five grand. You feel like a rock star where you're like, I want everything in gold, including my toothbrush. So getquip.com slash fun. You make my dreams. Okay. I need to stop doing that. I need to stop. I need to stop. I need to stop. But one thing I ain't gonna stop is using swag. People, if you want that kind of silky hair right out of the shower where it just combs through so easily, you got to get Suave. I'm into using their damage repair shampoo and conditioner. It's Suave Coconut Oil Infusion. I've got bleached strands. I use a hairdryer. I use a curling iron and I hate the damage, but I barely see it anymore because I'm using Suave Coconut Oil Infusion shampoo and conditioner. I give it a little TLC. It smooths the hair and it makes it look so healthy. It actually works. You don't have to believe me because Suave is going to give you a money-back guarantee. So try it for yourself. You don't like it? Throw the bottles in the street. No, don't do that. You send it back and get a money-back guarantee. But first, hair you can believe, Suave. And I am a fan of the damage repair Suave coconut oil infusion, but they have all kinds of different combinations. That's right, Suave. So what's going on? Oh, I don't know. Oh, I don't know. I forgot to tell you guys something kind of cool. I, uh, I, uh, I, uh, uh, uh. when I was in New York, uh, my dear friend Liz, who I went to college with, she was my college roommate. We are still friends. I remember when we were in college, this movie, Reality Bites, had come out. Right? You got your Ben Stiller, you went on a rider, your Ginny Garofalo, your Ethan Hawk. So now when I saw it, I didn't really like the movie. I saw it again. This is what the story's about. I saw it again a few weeks ago and I loved it. So Liz and I went to see it. And I think it was nineteen ninety four, five, six. Nineteen ninety four when it came out. And I hadn't started doing stand-up. I was a fan of stand-up. I think I maybe just gotten into a sketch group with my college. But, you know, at that point you had your David Crosses, your Janine Garofalo's there in New York doing what they call alternative comedy. Not they called it that, but people dubbed it that. 
And uh, I didn't know any of that was going on. You would see, we didn't have the internet, folks. So someone would have had to have handed me a newspaper from New York for me to know that it was going on. And actually, years later, I did uh, see an article about it. But anyway, um, I'm sitting in the theater with Liz back in the 90s. And she whispers to me, that woman's a stand-up comedian. Her name's Janine Gruffalo. She's really cool. And I said, oh. It just, like, I didn't even ask anything further. Like, where'd you see her? How do you know? I just, it just clocked in my brain. It wasn't like, then I came up with a plan to begin become a stand-up. And I had a brand and I had a Twitter account. And I knew exactly what I was going to do. It was just, I just said, back then, life just happened at the pace it happened. And just something went in my brain that must have gone way back in the brain. Part of the brain that says, hey, stand-ups aren't just these people from the 80s that you've seen on TV. They're, they're people like you. So, oh my God, there's a kid outside and it sounds like they're in my home and I'm on the fourth floor of a building. Oh my God, that episode where I was like, why do kids stomp so loud? Oh, nobody understood my question. Everyone went, because they don't have control of their bodies yet. And so they stomp. And I'm like, no, I get that. I know the reason they stomp. What I was asking was, first of all, it's just interesting that it sounds to me as loud and impactful as a 200 pound person who is walking in a controlled way. So I, it's kind of one of those fascinating things like a pound of feathers weighs the same as a pound of steel, right? It's just, there's going to be thousands more feathers to equal. So it's just, it's hard to get your head around. That's all I meant. I meant, is there a scientific phenomenon of sound? I wasn't like, what, what's happening with their feet? Why aren't they tiptoeing? I know they don't know how yet. God, people fucking, I mean, I was just delete, 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 delete. It was like, I hate when people don't understand what I'm asking. That's my fault, by the way. The other thing I wanted to know is the running. It's not just once like that. It's literally nonstop for three hours. So what I was asking parents who live in an apartment is what activity are they doing literally for three hours straight? Are they just running back and forth? Are you playing catch? What are you supervising? I'm just curious. Love, Jen. Okay. I know they have to run because they don't have a park and you don't mind. I'm not, there's no judgment. I'm just asking the way that I would if someone came over and went into my bathroom and stayed there for two hours, I would say, what are you doing in there? And there could be many answers. I'm constipated. I'm taking a bath. I'm going through your makeup. Like, You could be doing a million things. So when I hear for three hours straight, I'm just wondering what the activity is. Now you could be like, oh, I'm just reading a magazine and my husband's cooking and the kid's running around tiring himself out, chasing the dog. Okay. Just curious. That's all. I'm kind of wondering, are parents encouraging uh, this? No, I'm not actually wondering that. I don't give a shit. And actually, don't even answer me. I'm so over that topic. I just wanted to revisit for a second. Oh, why am I talking like this? So anyway, so Liz said that to me. Now, here we are, 24, 25 years later, 22 years later, and we are seeing Reality Bites again together, this time in the city of New York, and we are both grown-up ladies, and I am a stand-up comedian who is a friend of Janine Garofalo. Isn't that crazy. Isn't that sometimes fun to take a step back and go, look what I did. I mean, like, like nothing to do with her. Like, I don't mean, look what I did. She's my friend. I mean, she's friend to everyone in comedy, but it's like, look what I did. Like I became a comedian. It's kind of cool. Like that person who sat watching reality bites for the first time had no idea what she would become. And now this is, and I still don't, it's so interesting is as much success as I've had 20 something years later, I still don't know if I'll get to continue to be a stand-up comedian because the market decides, you know? So yeah, it was just, I don't know. It was just one of those kind of cool moments. 
And I thought you kids might enjoy that. But I was thinking back to, so I was staying at the Ludlow Hotel, which is on Ludlow Street, which is across the street from Luna Lounge, which was the name of a a bar that housed a Monday night show in New York City called Eating It. Eating It is a euphemism for bombing on stage. Oh, I ate it last night. Oh, look at him. He's eating it right now. I mean, we don't really say that all the time, but it's definitely a thing. Um, hang on a second. Uh, so, oh yeah, 96, this article was written and it got back to me in Boston. And this article is the reason I began stand-up comedy. Like it was the final kick in the pantaloon. And I moved to New York uh, a few months after this article came out. And then I went to the Luna Lounge, not realizing it wasn't like a proper comedy club. And that if you went on a Tuesday and there was a bartender there at 4 p.m., they were like, I don't know. I don't book the comedy show on Monday nights. But it was very cool. And it was like, you know, you had your Elliot Smith might be at the bar. He was at the bar a lot just with his head down, poor thing. And uh, it was super cool. And some people from Comedy Central kind of ran it. So it was like definitely, you know, had an industry tip, but it was also very outsider. And so in in the 90s, early 90s, in the late 80s, stand-up comedy got so popular. There were comedy clubs opening all over the world, really large-sized clubs. And it seemed like anyone who could throw a few jokes together became a comedian. And, and worse and worse people were becoming comedians. And less and less people started coming out. And they called it the comedy bust. There was the comedy boom, then obviously the comedy bust. So in the uh, you know 93 to 96 area, people were just kind of starting over. And a lot of people that weren't idiot, homophobic, racist, sexist types, comedians who weren't those types did not want to be in those dumb clubs with those dumb people. And there was a lot of smart audiences that didn't want to. And when we say smart in comedy, we don't even mean smart. We don't even mean that you have to get some kind of literary reference Literally in comedy, smart audience means not racist, not sexist, not homophobic, not transphobic, not, you know, not classist. Like it, it's crazy that it, it takes just baseline that to be called a smart audience, but yeah, that's what it is. And, um, so I'm very sad that there's no more Luna Lounge and it, it is now a hotel, not the Ludlow hotel. It's a different hotel. And that whole street now just doesn't have the same kind of well, actually, there's some cool stuff on Ludlow, like cute little coffee shops and cute little, you know, shops. And it's just not as gross as it used to be, I guess. But it was a real thrill for me to get to go there because I didn't even know what alternative comedy was. You see, when I was growing up and I watched comedy on TV, I watched Richard Pryor do monologues. I watched certain people do short jokes like a Joan Rivers, but she also sat on a stool while doing it and seemed very conversational. I mean, and that's sort of the comedy, which I just call comedy, that I related to. But people who did comedy outside of comedy clubs and that weren't just going joke, 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 but were maybe doing personal revealing things. In the 90s, they suddenly got called alternative comics because I guess they were in a venue that was an alternative to a comedy club. But really what they were doing is what comedy always was. But comedy had a shift in the 80s where it became something it shouldn't be. It became awful, right? It's like a drum machine. Um, and you go back to basics, you're not an alternative drummer. You're actually a fucking drummer, you know? And that's why I think of comedy. And if you got stamped with this alternative comedy label, it was really hard. Like you couldn't play proper comedy clubs, which sometimes is a delight to do because you do get in front of different audiences and they can pay. And, you know, so I had to work for a decade to get that stink off of me. And now, and if you ran your own room, like me and some girls, we ran uh, a comedy night at this bistro called B3 Avenue B and 3rd. I remember the people from Comedy Central saying to us, that's not a good look you know, to run your own room. It just kind of looks desperate. It's like, but we are desperate. We can't get booked anywhere. So we're making a night, you know? And sure enough, some of the boys that did our room, like a Dimitri Martin, he, he, he went on to become quite successful. Comedy Central plucked him very early, but the people who ran the room, it was like losers. And, and now if you run your own comedy room in New York and Brooklyn, 
you're the coolest person in the world and hundreds of people come and you're taken very seriously by the industry. And it's just one of those things where you go, we kind of missed the boat, but we were the boat before the new boats, but there was no internet. So there's no real history of this eating it at Luna Lounge. And I think about it all the time, but we didn't have Instagram. We didn't have smartphones. It just was, it was word of mouth. Like every story I remember from them, every picture is just from memory. And I never want to lose it. It was my favorite thing to do is go on Monday night and you could smoke inside and I would watch Mark Marin and Janine and all the people. And just when I finally started getting my own spots there, it was such a thrill. And then my generation from Boston moved in. It was me and my friend, Patrick Borelli. He now writes on Fallon and Eugene Merman. You know, we snuck in there in 98, 99 and, um, and started getting spots there. And it was just fantastic. And it's actually where I was the night before 9-11 was at Luna Lounge. Um, yeah, it was just a real, I don't know. So because of New York and it's on my mind, I'm going to read you the original article. But uh, what was interesting, I did this show in Brooklyn a few weeks ago. These young boys run it. They're in their 20s. And they didn't really know who I was. Uh, my friend that knows them said, Oh, you would love this room, Jen. It's always full. You know, it's young people that probably don't know you. I get on stage. I do well. I get off and they're like, you're really funny. I'm like, I don't mean to be rude, but I'm like a well-known comedian. They're like, you are? I'm like, yeah. Like I've been doing it 22 years and I have two Netflix specials and I've been on Colbert and and they were like, Oh, I'm so sorry. And the boys were horrified and they talked to me after and they said, are we sexist? Is that why we don't know you? And I said, no, you're just, your generation just doesn't look behind unless the person is already huge and famous, but why would you go digging? You know, I don't know. I, 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 I'm actually humbled. I don't need any more humbling, by the way, I'm sufficiently humbled, but they were super cool and super great. And I said, yeah, I used to run rooms in New York. And they said, what happened to them? And I said, well, we kind of abandoned them because it was frowned upon. And they said, it was, I mean, not here. We, we have, you know, people get discovered here all the time. We've been just, I go, yeah, you guys are living what we all built. And then they, they said something that they had never heard of alternative comedy and they'd never heard of Luna Lounge. And it broke my heart because they're doing what they're doing because of places like this. So it was very interesting. Um, but uh, Neil Strauss wrote this article. He's the one that wrote the Motley Crue book, The Dirt. Uh, this is from 1996, NewYorkTimes.com archives. It's called Take the New Comedy, Please. In the big comedy boom of the 1980s, it was nearly impossible to channel surf without running into at least one average-looking man in an open-collar shirt talking about his mother-in-law, masturbation, or Roman Catholicism. Stand-up comedy has had a bad reputation ever since. There's something cloyingly insincere about the way a stand-up comic tries to establish a connection with the audience and make transitions between unrelated gags. Everybody knows that the opening line, so I just got back from LA the other day, usually means that the comic wrote the joke three years ago and that the question, how many of you have ever been to LA, is just a manipulative tactic to try to get the audience to relate to the comic's experience. This is why the best place to see comedy in New York City is in the dingy back room of a small, smoky bar on the Lower East Side that's packed wall-to-wall on Monday nights. The performances at the bar, the Luna Lounge, are not typical stand-up comedy, but what is often called alternative comedy, or more cynically, thinking person's stand-up comedy. The contrivances that comics rely on to work an audience in a traditional club don't work at the Luna Lounge. Risks are taken and new ground is explored, some of it by comics better known for being cast members of television shows like Saturday Night Live, The State, and Mad TV. At the Luna Lounge, none of them are allowed to do anything they've performed before. Highlights of past shows have included Michael Ian Black's parody of acting school classes, trying to understand what it feels like to be a cat, the Upright Citizens Brigade's countless conceptual sketches that test the audience's ability to play along, Sarah Silverman's attempt to salvage a difficult night by delivering her neurotic monologue with her pants around her ankles, John Benjamin and Mike Lee's confrontation between a comic and a panda-suited heckler, and Janine Garofalo's many stream-of-conscious dissections of her life that week. The Luna Lounge isn't the only place for alternative comedy in Manhattan. 
In the past few years, cutting-edge comedy nights have popped up downtown from the performance art comedy of Surf Reality on the Lower East Side to some of the shows at Collective Unconscious, also on the Lower East Side. Ah, those were the two places I got my start. There were open mics you could go to, and they were wonderful. And that guy, Soy Bomb, that ran out onto the field one year, uh, he used to perform there. In recent months, performers at these clubs have been appearing on television in droves as other clubs and restaurants around the country now have their own nights for alternative comedy. Even established figures in the mainstream comedy world admit that a fresh wind is blowing. This is an evolution of a new kind of comedy and it's time for it to happen, said Rick Newman, the owner of Catch a Rising Star, the 70s comedy club that reopened in Manhattan this month. It's still in the early stages, but you're going to see people who in two years are going to be your new Seinfelds and Paul Reisers and Steve Martins. And so I would tell you guys that those people ended up being Louis C.K. and Mark Merritt um, for the men. And uh, I don't really know for the women because it was still Sarah Silverman and Janine Garofalo probably. Uh, yeah. Sad. Sad how long it takes to get more than two women at a time who are fucking famous. All right. The Toyota Comedy Festival, I used to perform in that, <laughs> a, perform a performance marathon at local clubs and theaters that begins next Friday and ends on June 16th, is focusing more than ever on Manhattan's downtown scene with bookings that demonstrate that the festival is aware of alternative comedy and its kinship to performance art and poetry. We want the festival to be reflective of where comedy is headed, said John Schreiber, one of the festival's producers. And the expanding in the last 18 months of this alternative comedy scene is probably the center of what is truly innovative in New York City. It's a movement that, that's occurred without a lot of hype attached to it, which is good for a movement. One main difference between an alternative comedy room and a traditional comedy club is a drink minimum. This may sound flippant. But mainstream comedy clubs are pricey affairs, full of tourists who tend to be drunk, boisterously intent on getting their money's worth, usually at the rate of a laugh a minute, and as interested in socializing with one another as in listening to the person on stage. At the Luna Lounge, the performance is free. The comics are paid nothing, as opposed to the 10 to 75 bucks they might make at regular clubs. And even when a performance does not elicit a single laugh, it is not always considered a failure. That's why the night was originally called Eating It, comedy slang for bombing, when it began at another small site, the Rebar in Chelsea a year and a half ago. Performing at the Luna Lounge is, quote, the most challenging thing I do, said Mark Marin, a favorite there who delivers ideas as much as jokes. I can take more risks emotionally in an alternative room. It indulges us. There are people who think differently or lead different lives, and part of the Luna trip is that those people are going to be embraced for that. At Alternative Nights, comedy is freed from the tyranny of the punchline. There are comics like David Wayne, a member of the sketch comedy group The State, who had never performed stand-up before the Luna Lounge. His sense of humor comes from the fact that he is pointedly not funny. Instead, he slowly unravels the layers of deception involved in putting a joke over on an audience. As Barry Sobel commented during his own performance at the Luna Lounge, making fun of its anti-comedy stance, this is my first attempt at alternative comedy, and by the quiet lulls, I think I'm doing well. The Luna Lounge's precedents are not just in the glory days before the comedy boom, the times of Lenny Bruce, Richard Pryor, and Andy Kaufman, when audiences had fewer expectations and performers in most cases had more social relevance. Its origins are also in theater workshops, performance art, coffeehouse culture, and poetry readings. For all of us, the show was born out of a selfish need to see comedy that felt new and different and exciting, said Amanda Schatz, a talent scout at MTV who organizes the night along with blah, blah, blah. Uh, we would go to clubs every night and see the comics doing the same bits over and over again. We could do their act for them if we wanted to. That was like comedy for civilians. We wanted to create comedy for people who loved it. We wanted to do comedy that was cool and prove that all that television exposure didn't kill it. 
The Luna Lounge is not just a place where seasoned comics can work out new material and attempt the performances they really want to do. It is also a spawning ground for new comics. One of the funniest characters... Uh... Blah, blah, blah. Okay, it doesn't matter. It's this guy. Blah. A sure sign of the growing importance of what is happening at the Luna Lounge is that every week the room is packed with agents and entertainment moguls. Based on their short performances there, many comics have been given deals to develop sitcom pilots, create promotional spots for cable channels. Ooh, what a job. Or appear on talk shows. Slowly, what is happening at the club is seeping its way into mainstream comedy. Hardly a week, a week goes by without at least one joke that was first told at the Luna Lounge, being told by the same performer on television. And at traditional clubs, young comics mock the contrivances of the comedy transition. Use, uh, okay. Uh, an agent said, when people come from the West Coast looking for new, up-and-coming, edgy talent, they'll come to Luna Lounge. Some of these performers that are coming out of what people are calling alternative forms of comedy are jumping to television quicker because they've become more seasoned in their confidence and abilities as performers, actors, and writers, and have pushed their ability to try things they're afraid to do or haven't done. Out of the bunch right now, you're going to see 70 to 75% working in the medium of television. That's me. Except I wasn't there yet. For Jeffrey Ross, performing at the Luna Lounge has meant pushing his own material to come up with something that is not only new, but also more marketable. That room changed my life, he said about the Luna Lounge's predecessor, the Rebar. I was a comic bumping around doing one-liners, and one day at Rebar, there was an HBO guy who said, I might have a full show out of a short piece I did about how I used to live with my grandfather who was sick. So piece by piece, in six-minute increments, I developed a one-man show there. Also, I probably wouldn't have gotten on Letterman or Comedy Central or a development deal otherwise. But the envelope that is being pushed is at the Luna Lounge can't be pushed quite as far elsewhere. Uh, after a tough performance at the Comedy Cellar, one comic explained, At the beginning of my set, I felt like I had to curse more to get the audience's attention. I almost wanted to wink and say, I have to do it. Zach Galifianakis, who is host... On Wednesday nights at Stand Up New York, oh my God, and performed at the Luna Lounge for the first time two weeks ago, said he was hoping to see the alternative in the mainstream fuse. Well, they did, Zach, and you got like the biggest thing of that. This is so fun to read. At an amateur night or even at a traditional stand-up club, these comics know they're not going to get the same responses when they're doing anti-comedy, he said. What I and my small circle of friends try to do is marry the two to bring that goofiness and experimentation to stand-up clubs. That's what the owner of Stand Up New York wants. He's sick of seeing the same relationship and airplane jokes. At Surf Reality, a form of comedy is being worked on even more alternative than alternative comedy. Mixing stand-up, sketch comedy, and East Village-style performance art, the acts there can range from ex-prostitutes talking about their jobs while taking off their clothes to singers who perform at children's parties trying their material out at an adult crowd. <laughs> Wednesday's more straightforward stand-up show. Sunday is the open mic marathon. Uh, blah, blah, blah. Okay. Uh, okay. These people are really nuts. We call it performance comedy because alternative means it might not be funny, and we insist that it be funny. The performances have a beginning, middle, and end, and they're not conducive to waitresses or heckling. Um, at drink minimum clubs, one can feel most comedians' resentment of their audience. At alternative nights, the audience is respected as intelligent. That is true. Whether alternative or not, stand-up is still dependent on its audience. The, there are fewer performers as vulnerable as a comic about to deliver a punchline because laughter, unlike applause, cannot easily be faked. Comedy can only change if its audience is changing. And this is happening as the internet ooh, and cable television ooh, bridge cultural gaps. Younger generations grow more cynical and worldwide, and detachment replaces 70s activism and 80s materialism. That was us, detached. A new sensibility is developing, one that requires a new kind of comic. In the next few years, that comic will emerge, and chances are that person will have risen from these nights on the Lower East Side. Oh, man. So cool. Anyway... Thanks for indulging old lady Jen in an article. And by the way, the Halloween decorations are up at CBS. And calm yourselves down about it. It makes me happy. 
You know, you get these kids going back to school and your mom drags you through CVS to get your notebook and your pens and you're like, summer's over. But look, there's a witch going, yeah, and some candy. And you're like, oh yeah, I forgot. Back to school means fall and fall means Halloween and candy and fun things. And Halloween is a great holiday. It's the the night before All Souls Day. It's Day of the Dead. Just for no reason at CVS right now, there's rows and rows of skeletons and witches and dead things. It's morose and fantastic. And I know, why are we eight weeks in advance? I don't know. Maybe there's some people that just get excited about it. It helps us transition into this season. They're just trying to make money. Yeah, it's a business. Maybe people like to buy things early. Maybe someone's going to be away for too much. I don't fucking know. It's fun. It makes me feel pressured. Well, you need to take five deep breaths then. An, An aisle in a store is just an aisle in a store. It exists. If you walk in and feel pressure, that's on you. You have just internalized a display as your own pressure. Okay? So I don't want to hear it. I know it. you think it sounds really smart to complain about consumerism and things are being put up too early. We need all the goddamn joy in this world that we can fucking get. Okay, people? Okay. So as we remember those who suffered and died in 9-11 and those who suffered because their loved ones died in 9-11, let us take all the joy we can fucking get. And if it means you need to go to CVS and buy a plastic pumpin, pumpin? God damn it, this was an inspirational speech. And buy a plastic pumpkin right the fuck now, then you do it. Don't buy a plastic pumpkin. That's just weird and sounds medical. Until next week, have fun.